Coming up next on Tech News Weekly, it's me, Jason Howell. I'm flying solo today. Micah Sargent is out, but we've got some great interviews for you, starting with Alex Reisner from The Atlantic. He has been covering the Books 3 AI data set very closely for the past couple of months, and he talks all about what's inside that data set with a new search tool. Also, Daniel Rubino from Windows Central joins to talk about and to break down uh, Microsoft Copilot, their announcement from last week, how it's unified into their products and uh, what it could possibly do in the future. Roger Chang joins, not from CNET, now with Cord Cutters News to recap the history of net neutrality and why it's back. And then finally, I do a comprehensive review of the Samsung Galaxy Tab S9 Plus. You're going to want to hear that next on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 305, recorded Thursday, September 28th, 2023. The promise of Microsoft Copilot. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Good news, if you're hiring, you've got help. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter works for you to find great candidates fast. Its smart technology identifies qualified candidates for you, and you can invite your top choices to apply. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. And by Duo. Protect against breaches with a leading access management suite providing strong multi-layered defenses to only allow legitimate users in. For any organization concerned about being breached and in need of a solution fast, Duo quickly enables strong security and improves user productivity. Visit cs.co slash twit today for a free trial. And by our friends, IT Pro TV, now ACI Learning. IT skills are outdated in about 18 months. Launch or advance your career today with quality, affordable, entertaining training. Individuals use code TWIT30 for 30% off a standard or premium individual IT Pro membership at go.acilearning.com slash TWIT. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tech News Weekly. I'm your host, Jason Howell, talking about uh, the people who are making and breaking the technology news each and every week. Normally, I have my co-host, Micah Sargent, sitting next to me. He is not here right now. He will be back next week, though, so I hope he's having uh, a wonderful day today. And uh, often when Micah is not here, we end up doing more interviews inside of the show. Usually it's like two interviews and some discussion. This week, we've got three awesome interviews lined up. Um, And then I'm going to give a review of the Samsung Galaxy Tab S9 Plus that I've been using for almost a month now. So that's coming up a little bit later. Why don't we just dive right in? Because we've got some great stuff to talk about this week. A big moment in the world of AI right now um, are all these lawsuits. There's like a bunch of lawsuits happening with big name authors pushing back on on the data sets that were trained using their books and their work. Um, sometimes, you know, that that those books are fed in there from like a, a pirated sources. So that's got a lot of attention. Uh, Alex Reisner from The Atlantic has been following this closely for the last couple of months since August, in fact, um, published just recently uh, an article about a search tool for seeing which author's work uh, is contained within the Books 3 data set, which we have talked about a couple of times on this show before. And Alex is here to talk all about it. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. Thanks yeah, for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you here. And I know you've been doing a lot of work uh, to kind of understand you know, discover and understand what this data set actually is. And I think it's informing a lot of authors and a lot of people who are really interested in kind of like the developments around AI and law and copyright and ownership and all these things. I mean, this is a very big um, kind of uh, stage for this this battle is this particular data set, right? Because a lot of the really big name AI companies uh, have been using it to a certain degree, and it really kind of shines a light on what we do and probably more importantly, what we don't know about what those uh, those companies are kind of basing their, their business around, right? Yeah, it's very secretive. Um, you know, what I've been investigating is, like, like you said, this one particular set of books that's being used is about 200,000 books, and they're being used by Meta, Bloomberg, and some other companies, but also a lot of just uh, independent AI developers that are out there. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and they're not old books. They're not like copyright expired books. They were about 80% of them were written in the past 20 years. Um, and the authors of these books, yeah, are not happy. And there's currently six class action lawsuits against the AI companies, uh, including the, the latest one was filed by the Authors Guild. And it's got uh, a lot of authors that anyone would recognize on it. Jonathan Franzen, George Saunders, uh, George R. R. Martin, the writer of uh, creator of Game of Thrones, David Baldacci, Scott Turow. Um, there's just there's a lot of authors uh, that are really unhappy about this. And they're suing mostly for copyright infringement. The stakes for the AI companies are really high, too. Uh, there's no way for the AI companies, if they were to lose these suits, to just pull certain books out of the large language models that they've trained. They would need to basically start over um, and... Yeah, yeah, I think so it, the stakes I, are high for them. Absolutely. And I think this is kind of like ongoing. Um, you know, there is another uh, story that we're not talking about in this show. I will be talking about it later in another show I do called AI Inside, uh, which is the Giddy's uh, image search um, or, or rather image generative AI system. And I think the reason that I'm kind of connecting these two is because here you've got a data set that's based largely on copyrighted material. Now, whether that actually constitutes like an overstep and overreach because, you know, is it transformative on the other end? Do fair use rules actually apply here? This is all the stuff that these these lawsuits are going to determine. But in the case of the Giddy, uh, Giddy Images having its own generative AI, their training data set is based entirely on images that they own. And so there's a, a little bit more of an understanding of like who owns, you know, the secret sauce that's being fed into the system here it's a lot more uncertain and it kind of feels like some of that uncertainty about what it means to train a data set or train a, a model and an AI around a data set like this. Like there's just a lot of ambiguity about what that means. And I, I wonder uh, the authors who have their books represented here and are upset about it. I guess the question I have, and I don't know that this is a question that you could necessarily answer, but it's one that keeps coming up for me is, do they have a good understanding of what it actually means to have this data inside of a training data set? Are they worried about something that doesn't exist or are their fears uh, warranted? What what would be your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think no one knows. You know, AI is a totally new technology. Uh, we talk about it largely in metaphors because it yeah. is so complex. Um, I don't think anyone really understands what the implications of this are. Um, when you read through the different lawsuits, there's a whole, there's a slew of different complaints. They're all slightly different. Um, there's, you know, charges of direct copyright infringement or sorry, uh, allegations of direct copyright infringement, right. vicarious copyright infringement. There's what's called removal of copyright management information, which is like stripping uh, authors, titles, publisher uh, names, just different identifying information from the books. Uh, there's uh, unfair competition, I believe. I think, you know, there's a lot of technical legal stuff here, mm -hmm. but to get out of that, I would, what I would say is what the author's, I think uh, anger and complaints boil down to is number one, some of the richest companies in the world profiting from their work, right? So there's this, this sense that the AI systems couldn't really do anything without their work. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the, the source of their so-called intelligence. Um, and I think the, the second point is just that the systems may put a lot of writers out of work. Um, it's a really serious threat to the industry. It doesn't need to write better than a human in order to really negatively affect the job market. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. I think fair use is very, very complex. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to comment on, on whether I, which side I think will win. I've talked mm -hmm. to a lot of lawyers. Some of them think that the authors have a slam dunk case. Uh, others think that the tech companies have a slam dunk case. It's really, it's really hard to know. It seems to me like it could go either way. Yeah. And it's fascinating to kind of watch it uh, go back and forth and uh, kind of learn in real time along with everyone, which is just a testament to how rapidly this 
thing has developed. You know, not even a year ago, uh, the majority of people didn't even, you know, had never heard the three words large language model strung together in a sentence. And now <laughs> we're at a point where so, I mean, so many you know, from so many directions, you know, businesses are being impacted, uh, how people are working and doing their jobs is being, you know, either improved or negatively impacted by uh, the existence of these systems. Everybody's trying to understand it and it's impossible to avoid it. So that's kind of the weird, uh, interesting place that we are right now. You, um, mentioned in one of your articles, your recent articles, um, not, I mean, you you talked a little bit or a lot about what's there, but you also made a point to mention what's not there. And um, I'm I'm just kind of curious to hear in your words, what are from your perspective, what are the gaps that are that were unfilled in a data set like this, and why is that important? Yeah, so it's it's tricky to say because you know who's who's to say what's not included. Right. Like if if we're talking about what what comprises a comprehensive yeah. uh, list of all the knowledge of humanity, well, who's you know, in whose eyes? Um, and I think yeah, it's that's, all subjective for sure. Yeah, it's all subjective. Everyone comes from their own cultures and has is biased towards the knowledge of that culture. Um, you know, I would say in, in really simple terms, there's hardly anything from an Islamic perspective uh, in the data set where there's a lot of books written from a Christian perspective um, there's things like, you know, there's a lot of books on other countries, but a lot of them, maybe, maybe even a majority are travel books. Mm-hmm. And so they're not really about the cultures in these countries. They're about how to be a tourist in these countries, you know, where, where to, where to go to eat, how, how to buy things. And so it's a very Western centric view of the world. Um, and that matters because as people start using these systems more, a lot of people are using large language models uh, to replace, you know, they're using it instead of Google search uh, or Bing or whatever search engine they used to use. And they're getting information that it's not clear that it's biased towards a Western perspective, but but it is because that's all the, the the training data for the model is so heavily biased towards Mm -hmm. a Western perspective. Yeah, that's that's super fascinating and very interesting. I mean, when you're thinking about like geographical locations around the world and thinking it through a travel lens like that is a very specific type of lens. It might get into a little bit of culture, but it's not going to get into it the same way that something, you know, written not with travel in mind, but to be like a comprehensive kind of recounting of a particular aspect of that culture might actually be. And so you end up with these gaps. And we've talked, you know, over the last number of years about bias in the systems that are that are created. And it's not always intentional. It's not like someone goes, I'm going to create this data set. I'm going to make sure and keep the Islamic perspective out of here. It's just that it's it's, it's like filtered through a very uh, specific um, lens that knowingly or not ends up excluding certain things and doesn't give a clear picture. And then we end up in the potential you know, realm of, of misinformation, you know, being fed out as if it were fact, which we've seen a lot of <laughs> large language models be very adept at doing. Um, so it's fascinating stuff. Um and you actually mentioned uh, you you referred to this in your piece as like a gatekeeper, uh, kind of these these models or, ch- or the chatbot being the gatekeeper. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting. These models are you know this is like cutting edge technology, but in a way, uh, the services that are being built with the technology it's a little bit from a certain sense uh, a reversion to like a pre internet model of interacting with the world's knowledge. So before the internet, um, you know, if you wanted to know about brewing your own beer, you'd have to go to the library and, and find a book or you'd need to find an expert who, who knew about it. And, and you'd kind of, you'd have a very small number of sources. Uh, you'd have to kind of trust the author of the book or the expert. And that was the great thing about the internet. You know, the early days of the internet, you had Yahoo, which was a, you, would give you links uh, to hundreds of other people who were brewing beer and they would all have their own perspective. They were all just kind of a click away. 
uh, in the time that it would have taken you to drive to the library, you could get a hundred different people's perspectives on, you know, a question that you had. And with the chat bot, it feels a little bit like we're reverting to the single source model. Uh, you're expected to just kind of trust that, that the chat bot, the chat bot is presented as an expert, right? Um, or as a kind of Oracle mm-hmm. and there's been efforts to have them cite their sources, but it's still it's still pretty limited. Uh, they're not they're not citing their sources all the time, and you know they as you say they're prone to what are being called hallucinations that they may be telling you something that's true, they may be telling you something that's false, and it's really difficult. It can be really difficult to tell. Um, so that's that's kind of why I feel like we it, it is a little bit of a return from uh, an open, a more open internet uh, to like a more of a, a primitive gatekeeping model. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, now you, uh, I know we've re- kind of reached the end of, in the end of the time for the interview, but I did want to mention this tool, this like searchable, uh, you know, capability that people have to kind of see what's in there and everything. Actually, I did a show yesterday with Jeff Jarvis, who's written a couple of, of books. What would Google do being one of them um, on yesterday's This Week in Google? And uh, he searched the database and sure enough, a couple of his books were in the database. And he would definitely comes from the perspective of like, you know, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm happy to have my work in there. I'm sure there are some authors that feel that way. It sounds like, though, these cases are being levied, obviously, by authors who absolutely do not feel that way. If people want to search the database for themselves, like uh, how can they do that? Yeah, just go to the Atlantic. Uh, there's there's an article there. There's a search tool. Uh, if you just search uh, the Atlantic's website for books three, you can you can find that and uh, search for search for all your favorite authors or your <laughs> own books if you are an author. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, if you're searching for your favorite authors, there's I mean, there's really not a whole lot you can do with that directly. It's not like here's a here's a source you know for you to you know get a bunch of pirated books or anything like that. It's definitely not along those lines. But I guess I suppose it's interesting to know kind of what informs this data set to get a better sense of, you know, how these systems uh, come to the conclusions that they do when we're using them. And yeah, fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Alex, I appreciate uh, appreciate you uh, taking time to join me, first of all, but I want to thank you for um, hopping on and taking out 15 minutes of your life uh, to talk about this and the work that you're doing following this story. Um, Obviously, Alex uh, writes for The Atlantic. You can find a number of articles that he's written on this topic, including the one we're showing right now, Search the Books Database Powering Meta's Generative AI. You can take a look at that yourself, and I'm sure we'll be seeing more coming from Alex uh, in the near future. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. All right. We will talk to you soon. Okay. Coming up, another interview, two of three. In fact, Um, we're going to be speaking with Daniel Rubino from Windows Central about Microsoft Copilot. And uh, kind of what is it in its current incarnation and in light of uh, the past week's worth of news around the topic. So we'll get to that in a moment. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Uh, We would like to give out a shout out to all those whose job it is to hire employees because you don't have an easy job when you're hiring employees from small business owners going to job fairs to the HR directors vetting hundreds of applications You have one of the toughest jobs out there, so we salute you. But what if I told you that there's something that can make your whole hiring process faster and easier, and I can tell you that that exists? It's called ZipRecruiter, and right now, you can try it for free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW, and you can check it out for yourself. ZipRecruiter saves you time. So instead of you doing all the hiring groundwork yourself, ZipRecruiter actually does it for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it sends it to uh, the over 100 job sites. Um, so you can, you know, right from there, you can reach more of the right people. It just makes it so much easier. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology scans thousands of resumes for you to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds and sends 
to you available great matches for your job. So you see the best matches, right? That's really, at the end of the day, what you want. Probably so much of your time filtering through these resumes is getting to the good stuff. Well, ZipRecruiter gets you to the good stuff. Uh, Once you review your list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply so they're more likely to apply sooner. And then ZipRecruiter has actually helped make hiring faster and easier for businesses of all sizes. So everybody's using it. In fact, over 3.8 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And you can count Twit as one of those businesses as well. We've hired plenty of awesome people uh, through ZipRecruiter. Hiring heroes. Let ZipRecruiter help make your job easier. You are the hiring heroes. So we're going to make it easier for you. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter, get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. And uh, once more for the back row, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash TNW. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire still. I mean, and continually the smartest way to hire. And we thank them for their support of Tech News Weekly. All right. Last week, Microsoft had its big Surface and AI event. They all have AI in there in some way, shape, or form these days. It began with a bang, the announcement of a unified co-pilot offering. And, um, you know, I know I would love to know more about this. So we have Daniel Rubino from Windows Central here to talk all about that smart AI feature set. Welcome back to the show, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to get you here. Thank you for taking some time to talk about Copilot, which I realize like I'm I'm not entrenched in the Microsoft world, but I do know that Copilot kind of existed before the news last week. So the news wasn't that it exists, but rather that it's kind of changing to kind of integrate on a wider scale. Talk a little bit about um, how Copilot existed prior to this integration? What, where were people running into and, and interacting with Copilot prior to last week? Actually, nowhere. nowhere. <laughs> so Copilot, yeah, Copilot was a uh, a demonstration of a product that was supposed to come later this fall ah, when it was my misunderstanding. first showed off in May. Got it. Yeah, I think what you're confusing with it's Bing Chat. So Bing Chat's been out since February. That was the big thing that was announced. And Copilot is built off of that using a lot of the same technology. So they're similar, but they, they're they a little bit different as well. So what happened was in May, they announced that, you know, Copilot was coming. And what they showed was it like existing in all different apps and everything. And they would just call it like Copilot for Outlook and Copilot for Excel and all that. All they kind of did at this event was unify them conceptually mm-hmm. uh, with a unified logo, but they still technically exist independently within um, different apps or Windows 11 itself. Uh, the difference, of course, is they're all tied to your Microsoft account, so stuff is kind of shared between them. But that's kind of what was the, the big story. They went to more detail about stuff that's coming as well as for uh, being chat for enterprise. Okay, so... With this kind of unified uh, approach, which to me makes a lot of sense. I know Google has been doing this as well with a lot of its AI into its products. I've I've felt uh, for the past year, kind of my growing feeling around AI is it makes a heck of a lot more sense to bring AI into the things you're already using as opposed to having like a destination that you go to interact. And that seems to be what Microsoft um, is doing with Copilot. What What is its capabilities and where are people discovering it? So what happened was this week, Microsoft pushed out a new update. They're just calling it the September 26th update. There's really no official name for it. Uh, but if you go and seek this update, meaning you you go and check for updates on your Windows 11 computer and it's qualified, you will get this update. Otherwise, it'll be pushed out to everyone uh, in the coming weeks. This is the first release publicly, or I should say that mainstream versus the insider channels where Copilot is available. Uh, It's only available in some countries. It'll be rolling out. It's in preview form, you know, so it's an early look at it. Um, You know, what can it do now? Not a ton. I mean, so it does like... Bing chat, right? So Bing chat's in there. So you can do all the same stuff you were doing in Bing chat before. You can drag and drop things into it. So there's some cool stuff you can already do. There's a lot more coming, but like right now you can take like a screenshot of on your computer of whatever, say it has text in it. 
you can drop it into the chat and ask it a question, summarize what's on this image, mm-hmm. tell me what this is, translate it and all that. And it'll use uh, OCR to basically read that image and do whatever you're asking to do. Uh, eventually, you'll also be able to take a, a photo and drop it into it and say, you know, remove the background and it'll remove the background for you. So there's a bunch of this sort of like things it can do there. Um, it's also sort of contextual. So there's an option to uh, you turn it on and it works with the edge. Uh, so it can like see what's on edge at the moment. So you can be like, hey, summarize this page or do this and do that. Uh, but and you can also do basic commands with Windows itself. Like you can tell it to go to dark mode or organize your windows. But more and more features are coming. I think this is sort of like, you know, years ago, Microsoft had Cortana and then we mm. had Siri and we had all these assistants. This is what we thought that was going to be. So <laughs> right. this is truly an assistant that uses machine learning. Uh, it's going to be a lot of it's going to be local and it's going to be able to actually go and do requests for you as well as other things. For instance, Microsoft has a thing called a uh, phone link where it connects your Android phone and even the iPhone to Windows itself. And you can see text messages and alerts and notifications all on your computer without taking your phone out. Well, with Copilot, you're going to be able to ask Copilot you know, to search something in your text messages. And it'll be able to do that from your PC and search it on your phone because it's going to have a record of your text messages that came in. So it's really kind of a a very powerful tool that's only going to get more powerful in the coming weeks, months, and years. Yeah, you can imagine as as an operating system is built up around this kind of advanced uh, functionality, um, what that could lead to. Do you have any like wish list items? Like, you know what? It, it's it's capable of doing some pretty interesting stuff, though. There, you know, the the sky's the limit for the future. <laughs> I really want this particular thing, you know, for it to, for it to be uh, able to do that. Do you have any wish list items? Yeah, I mean, I think the holy grail here is proactive, uh, you know, actions. Yeah. You know, in other words, you get up in the morning, turn your computer on, and Copilot tells you, "Hey, you have these important emails that came in. You have a calendar appointment here." Do you want me to text this person? You know, like oh really like a true assistant. Now, yeah, and, and that's going to be possible. It'll take us some time to get there, but mm-hmm. it's totally possible. The big thing that's coming out with Intel uh, is an NPU. So all processors coming out in the next couple of years will have a dedicated process, processor for AI. And this is going to start using that, you know. So that's kind of the future there. I also just like the stuff in Outlook and Office. So like, for instance, if you're in Office, like one of the things in like PowerPoint was you had to be like a PowerPoint expert before to make a good PowerPoint presentation. It was a skill in of itself, yes. let alone the knowledge you had to put into whatever that presentation was. Now you can go in and tell it, be like, hey, give me a banner with the fall leaves and use this photo in there as well. And it'll generate a banner for you and put it in there or give me a background image. And then you can use that image. You can remove things from the background, add things to it, all using AI. Since this is now going to be powered by Dolly 3, which is a much more powerful uh, implementation mm-hmm. of being image creator. Interesting. Okay, so how are people, uh, how are users presented with the opportunity to do this? Is this something that they find kind of in the taskbar, like search you know, or microphone area in order to trigger it? Or is it more integrated into each uh, different component of the operating system and apps in different places where it makes sense. How how is that presented? Yes. <laughs> so the short answer is with the Windows 11 update this week, if you got it, which has 150 new features in there. Uh, and I believe it's if you're in the U.S. or certain countries, you'll have Copilot Preview. It'll be next to the search bar. It's a, their new universal icon that they're using. It's a very colorful ribbon and it says pre on it. When you click it, a pane is going to slide out from the right side and give you access to it. So that's how it's going to exist in Windows 11. There'll be a shortcut key you can do just to bring it up as well. It'll probably be voice activated pretty soon too. Uh, It will also be in those other apps I said, like Microsoft Office, Word, PowerPoint. That's still coming, but um, that's going to be sort of the next iteration. It's also going to, they're going to update Edge to, instead of having the Bing chat icon, it's going to be this icon. So it's going to be in all their apps in some form. It's even in SwiftKey right now on Android, uh, and I think on iOS. But it's, um, so you can actually use the keyboard and start using this technology within the keyboard to grammar check and do all this sort of stuff right on your phone in real time. 
how much of this, I'm I'm assuming this is all happening on device and not necessarily going to the cloud. Um, Is there any sort of uh, concerns around, you know, the the, the standard kind of concerns that we see around AI and and like data privacy, especially when you're talking about like enterprise users and stuff like that? Is that even a consideration here? So for enterprise, of course it is, right? Enterprise <laughs> gets uh, the, the, the white, yeah, the white yeah. glove treatment, right? Yeah. So there is Bing chat for enterprise. It's a siloed version of this. And what that means is whatever data you're putting into it or giving it access to never goes to Microsoft and is never used to train models for the, for AI. Okay. Basically it stays on the device and doesn't go anywhere. And it, when you use it, it actually has a secured uh, notification at the top telling you that. For consumers, it's a bit different. Now, none of the information you're giving is tied to, it's tied to your account, but not, uh, but it's anonymous. It, there's no name with it, right? So it goes back into the system. It is used for training. There's been over a billion chats used by Bing Chat so far. So you're, you're, whatever you put in there is going to be used for training, but it won't be uh, traceable back to you. Now, is this a privacy and security concern? Yeah, possibly, right? I think all this stuff is. And, you know, um, there was recently a headline talking about how all this new AI is basically a surveillance tool. And it kind mm-hmm. of is in a way. So we have to be careful with this. I'll say Microsoft has published uh, what they call um, their ethics on AI. And you can go to their website and they publish all their documents of what they what they're doing with privacy, their goals and, and their philosophy on this approach. It's all transparent and there for anyone to read. Um, so, you know, they're being uh, very forward with this stuff, making sure consumers are know, know what they're getting into. Of course, you can always opt out of this stuff. No one's forcing you to use it. You can just turn this thing off if you don't want to use it, too. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, now, now this was just one of, of many announcements. And before we let you go, I thought I'd give you the opportunity to, you know, maybe, maybe this was the most exciting part of the, uh, the announcements last week, uh, or maybe it's something else. What, what was the, what was the announcement from last week that had you most excited, most energized? So, I mean, Windows 11 in general has just gotten a lot more refined and it's just turning out to be like a really nice modern operating system. They're clearly devoting a lot of time to doing that. So I'm pretty happy overall with this update. I think it's one of the more substantial ones we've seen since the release of Windows 11. But besides that, they also announced a Surface Laptop Studio 2. I've gone on record saying the Laptop Studio, the first one, was, is one of my favorite laptops ever. It's just mm-hmm. and it's one of the best Surface devices they've ever created. It's very expensive. It's kind of a niche use. But it's just it gets great battery life. The performance is good and the form factor is totally unique. So I'm getting my hands on the second one very soon Excellent. and very excited to try that out. I think it's just one of the best examples of what a Windows PC can be. Yeah. OK, well, that's a that's a big tease forward then uh, with the successor coming out. And uh, you'll have the review at Windows Central dot com, yep. I imagine, um, here. In of course. A short bit. So, Daniel Ravino, yep. thank you so much for hopping on and uh, and telling me a little bit about this. And uh, yeah, everybody okay. should follow your work at windowscentral.com. Thank you. Great. Thanks. All right. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Um, we do need to take a break. And then when we are done with the break, we're going to talk a little bit about net neutrality being a thing again. What does that even mean? Is it a big deal? I know it was a big deal when, uh, you know, it kind of went poof. Uh, suddenly the net neutrality rules were threatened. And um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that with Roger Chang from Cord Cutter. Uh, cordcuttersnews.com. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Duo. Duo protects against breaches with a leading access management suite. It's strong, it's multi-layered defenses, it's innovative capabilities that only allow legitimate users in and then, of course, keeps the bad actors out. For any organization concerned about being breached that needs protection fast, especially Duo quickly enables strong security while also improving user productivity. Duo prevents unauthorized access with multi-layered defenses and modern capabilities that thwart sophisticated malicious access attempts. Uh, You can increase authentication requirements in real time when that risk is rising, when it rises. Duo enables high productivity by only requiring authentication when needed. That enables swift, easy, and secure access. Duo provides an all-in-one solution for strong MFA, passwordless, single sign-on, and trusted endpoint verification. And Duo helps you implement zero-trust principles by verifying users and their devices. And you can start your free trial today. You can sign up today at cs.co slash 
twit. Check it out for yourself. That's cs.co slash T-W-I-T. And we thank Duo for their support of Tech News Weekly. All right. So net neutrality, It's let's just say it's had its ups and downs uh, in the past number of years. Uh, it was kicked off. Um, I mean, initially it was kind of launched by the uh, the Obama administration. So it was kicked off by the Obama administration and then kicked out during the Trump presidency. Uh, then FCC chairman uh, Ajit Pai uh, ultimately dismantling the rules in 2018. And things felt, you know, pretty, pretty iffy for net neutrality at that point. Things are changing, though. And so I thought it would be a good, uh, good reason to check in on this. Roger Chang actually wrote about this for Cord Cutters News. And uh, so Roger is here with me to talk all about it. Welcome back, Roger. It's good to see you. Thanks, Jason. Uh, excited to be back on the show. Yeah, it's good to see you. And and with your new digs, uh, I think the last time we had you on, you were you were at CNET. So now you're with Cord Cutters News, and uh, yeah, so congratulations on the transition. And I think this is a great opportunity to kind of talk about something. It's funny. Yesterday on this week in Google, I brought up this story, and it kind of felt like crickets. And I I found it kind of interesting because. Man, there for a while, net neutrality was the thing that everybody was talking about. I don't think that it's any less important now than it was before. But I wonder if, like, we have whiplash at this point. It's like, oh, here we go again. Like, <laughs> what's your take on this current stage of net neutrality? I mean, there's absolutely an aspect where there's a fatigue with, with the issue. I mean, this is an issue yeah. that people were so passionate about. And I think a lot of people still are passionate about. But because of the back and forth, you know, it was approved and then it was dismantled and now it's, it might be approved again. Yep. The, the back and forth, I think folks are seeing that this has become such a partisan issue yeah. that it just – it's exhausting to follow because there are so many partisan issues out there. Uh, and and it, just keeping up with everything can be a lot for people. Yeah, yeah. So before we kind of dive into um, where we are, maybe maybe a little bit of history. Talk about the kind of the, briefly, if you don't mind, the, the initial foundation of net neutrality and then kind of what led to it ultimately being dismantled. Yeah, ultimately, net neutrality started as just sort of a, a policy, a general policy that the FCC wanted to implement across ISPs. The basic underpinning is that ISPs like Comcast or Verizon or AT&T have to treat traffic on their networks fairly. They can't prioritize one over the other. There, there can't be so-called fast lanes that folks can pay for priority access to the end user. Um, and so that has resulted, that sort of simple idea, um, codifying it into some sort of rule that can be enforced has been just uh, this kind of massive messy drama that has really mm -hmm. taken place over the last decade or so uh, and, and has shifted with different administrations, different political leanings. And and so now, you know, it's it's coming back theoretically. But again, we don't know if, for instance, if this somehow becomes successful, if history doesn't repeat itself. And if, for instance, President Trump wins or Trump wins a uh, reelection, then it gets all tossed out again. So I think that's that's kind of again going back to why people are exhausted about it. Yeah, that's partly why I think there's uh, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of concern about this because even if they're going to bring it back, who's to say another administration? won't dismantle it all over again. Yeah, it just becomes a hot potato uh, back and forth or exactly. like a tennis match or something. Um, during what I will call the net neutrality winter, um, <laughs> were there <laughs> were there aspects of the broadband industry that were able to kind of capitalize? Like, were, were there were, was there a perception that the lack of, of net neutrality rules, the way they had been kind of instilled prior to the removal um did that impact things like did we see negative impacts as a result of it not being what it once was that's a great question and i was kind of looking back at it and i, I didn't see a huge amount of examples but i think that's yeah. partly because after in the wake of those federal rules getting dismantled a bunch of states took up the cause right california that's washington true. a number of states implemented their own net neutrality rules. And in some cases, like in California, the rules actually went beyond what the FCC had asked, like uh, things like uh, banning zero rating as a practice. And so I think because of that sort of fragmented uh, environment that we're in, where there are net neutrality laws, but they're all kind of different and they're different state by state, 
there haven't been a lot of examples of egregious actions uh, taken by ISPs sort of capitalizing or taking advantage of the lack of regulations because there were regulations there. They were just all over the place and, and it wasn't a particularly consistent set of rules that anyone had to play by. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's right. The uh, the rebound after that was like, all right, well, then we're going to take it to the states. And we did see a lot of changes there. But um, in order for what's happening now to happen, there needed to be some changes at the FCC. And that was a bit of a, a, a dramatic moment or has been for a little while. Talk a little bit about what transpired to ultimately kind of lead to uh, where we are right now, where, where it is kind of being proclaimed as like it's it's net neutrality season again. <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, the FCC for the majority of uh, Biden's administration has been a fairly toothless organization for 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 all of it, really, because they were deadlocked with uh, two commissioners, two Republican commissioners, two Democrat commissioners. Uh, there typically is three of whatever whatever power or whatever uh, political power political party is in power, mm-hmm. uh, and they had a lot of problems. Biden, the Biden administration had a lot of problems getting their first pick, Gigi Sohn, uh, confirmed as commissioner. There was there was a bit of a, a campaign against her uh, for some of the things she said uh, previously. They, they, she was, I would argue, fair, unfairly characterized as, as a radical. Uh, but there was a lot of opposition to her being sworn in. As a result, they could not get a fifth commissioner, and they were deadlocked two to two, which meant they couldn't really do anything. So now that Ana Gomez has taken um, – has been sworn in as the third commissioner. Literally, like a day after she was sworn in, um, SEC Chair Jessica Rosenworcel announced this uh, this push to bring back net neutrality, which was something that President Joe Biden and a, a number of uh, Democratic lawmakers have sort of expressed support of since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, so then that has been proclaimed, uh, and then, so what is the next step? Then did they outline any sort of official plan to say, and this is how we're going to enforce this, or just this is what we're we want to work on? It's right now. I mean, as with every sort of government uh, action, there's it's just a lot of processes, right? I think there. Are, the initial step is to open this up for public feedback. There's yeah. a vote to even, you know, make sure there's a vote next month to make sure that there actually can, which is because yeah. of the 3-2 majority is sort of de facto, but they're going to be opening it up for public feedback. Uh, Rosa Worsel said that she was she was looking to listen this time. She wanted to, to have an open dialogue. Um, but yeah, th- this is a process that could take a while. And even as it happened with Ajapai uh, and then with Tom Wheeler before him, it's a it's a years long process or a year long process to kind of get this stuff through. It is a uh, yeah, it, it, it's a messy and it's a complicated thing to kind of get a rule of this magnitude passed. And even once it passes, it's going to deal with like legal challenges. So this this is going to take a while for. It's it's not that you know it's not going to happen where she just snaps her finger and yeah, neutrality. Sure. Is, it's going it's going to be a while. Yeah. Yeah. Now you quoted Jonathan Salters, the CEO of U.S. Telecom, who represents the broadband companies. So that's like AT&T, Verizon. Um, He called these rules, quote, designed for a long forgotten era uh, that runs directly counter to and will likely derail the critical achievement. We are so close to reaching universal connectivity. I'm I'm curious to know what he what he means by that. What what it, from his perspective and from the perspective of broadband uh, companies, um, what is the what is the threat from their perspective as far as this net neutrality push coming back? Yeah, this this idea that uh, net neutrality that these these rules are antiquated that is a long time argument made by the ISPs. Generally speaking, you know this what this entails is reclassifying these ISPs under a Title II designation, which which is a common carrier designation similar right. to, to gas and power, right? And the, the idea that they've got to treat all traffic neutral is kind of similar to how gas and power works. Uh, and because of that, they argue that this is an antiquated law. It's overly burdensome to the ISPs to follow. But, you know, the FCC sort of addressed this, right? They, they uh, Rosenworcel was clear that this wasn't about, um, you know, mandating or, or changing rates. This wasn't about um, really mending their, their business. This is really about bringing back enforcement power to the FCC. Because when Ajapai's FCC dismantled these rules, they also sort of abdicated any kind of enforcement authority to the FTC. And the FTC doesn't really have a lot of say 
unless there's like an antitrust concern. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, what this really does beyond just sort of, again, codifying this idea of an open internet, it really kind of brings back some of the enforcement powers to the FCC for things like dealing with outages or that they, she called out the the situation from a few years back when Verizon throttled some firefighters in Santa Clara, right? The, even if, if that was, Verizon says that was a mistake, even if it was a mistake, the FCC didn't have the authority to step in right away and say, hey, like this isn't right and kind of levy fees or fines. Uh, with this change, that would that would allow for that. And I think that's what the, the ISPs are, are generally concerned about. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes sense. Um, well, I would, uh, encourage everybody to go to cordcuttersnews.com and read your write-up is a very kind of, uh, you know, detailed and, uh, insightful, uh, look into net neutrality, the then, the now, kind of where it's headed and, uh, and also just a great opportunity to get you back on the show uh, from your new dig. So Roger Chang, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. I appreciate it. It's been nice talking to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed the chat. Absolutely. And we will uh, we'll talk to you again in the future and bring you back. So thank you again, Roger. All right. We're going to take a quick break and uh, thank the sponsor of this episode of Tech News Weekly. And then I am going to go ahead and give you my review of the Samsung Galaxy Tab S9 Plus. It's a little bit of a mouthful to say that, but that's what Samsung does these days. That's coming up in a moment. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by our friends, IT Pro TV, now ACI Learning. Our listeners know the name IT Pro TV as one of our trusted sponsors for the last decade. They've been, they've been with us for so long. It's been awesome. As part of ACI Learning, IT Pro TV, now IT Pro has elevated their highly entertaining, bingeable, short-format content with over 7,200 hours to choose from and new episodes added daily. Always something new to watch. ACI Learning's personal account managers will be with you every step of the way, uh, fortifying your expertise with access to self-paced IT training videos, interactive practice labs, so you're getting messy along the way as well, that which helps you learn, and certification practice tests. One user shares excellent resource, not just for theory, but labs incorporated within the subscription. It's fantastic. Highly recommend the resource and top class instructors. And I think that speaks to kind of the benefit of what um, what ACI Learning is doing here, because it's not just this passive viewing experience. It really is that but the labs and the the work that you do along with it that really kind of like uh, cements uh, your learning and makes it, you know, takes it to that next level. Don't miss ACI Learning's practice labs where you can test and experiment before deploying new apps or updates without compromising your live system. MSPs really love that. Retake practice IT certification tests so you're confident when you sit for the actual exam. So it's going to improve your performance if you stick to it. And if you watch the content and you take these practice tests, that can only make you better. ACI Learning brings you IT practice exam questions from Microsoft, CompTIA, EC Council, PMI, and many more. You can access every vendor and skill you need to advance your IT career in one place. ACI Learning is the only official video training for CompTIA. Or check out their Microsoft IT training, their Cisco training, Linux training, Apple training, security, cloud and that's, you know, just kind of scratching the surface. They have so much more to choose from. You can learn IT. You can pass your certs. You can get your dream job, hopefully, with all of that knowledge. Or if you're ready to bring your group along, head over to our special link. You fill out a form for your team. Twit listeners receive at least 20% off an IT Pro Enterprise solution and can reach up to 65% for volume discounts, depending on the number of seats that you need. Learn more about ACI Learning's premium training options across audit, IT, and cybersecurity readiness. Visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. And for individuals, use code twit30. You'll get 30% off a standard or premium individual IT Pro membership. That's go.acilearning.com slash twit. And we thank our friends at ACI Learning for their support of Tech News Weekly. All right, so about a month ago, I got this here tablet. It is the Samsung Galaxy Tab S9 Plus 5G. Actually, the folks at uh, AT AT&T sent this my way through an AT&T SIM into it, which 
you know, I have any of the tablets that I've ever owned. I've never had like a SIM plan, but it is really nice to like have a SIM, uh, you know, a SIM card inside of a tablet for when you go traveling and stuff like that. This is the 12 gig RAM and 256 gigs of storage uh, version of the tablet. And so I've been using it and I know that it's been about a month because I can tell you when I go into the camera and let's see here, I don't need location. I don't like to have location. And if I go to some of the earlier uh, photos, <laughs> it's my puppy, which I can't help but show pictures of. And I'm telling you, he's like twice that size now in like a month. I, I looked at these pictures as I was getting ready for this review and I was like, oh my God, he is so much bigger than that now. It's just kind of blowing my mind. But anyways, we'll talk about the cameras in a second. This is the design of the tablet. And I have to say, this is not the only S9 or you know, a Galaxy series kind of premium Samsung tablet that I've used before. Um, I've reviewed a lot of their premium offerings on their tablets. And my opinion is if you're looking for an Android specific tablet and you want some of the best out there, this is, this is where you go. Samsung's Galaxy Tab, uh, kind of their premium lineup this year being the, the S9. This is the S9 Plus. And then you can get the S9 Ultra, which has you know, even better specs and even more features. I'm not reviewing that today, though. I'm just reviewing the Plus. Still a very worthy competitor um, against even the Ultra. This thing has been uh, a beauty for me to use. And you can see the design's very, it's got a very, like, thin but durable design, uh, aluminum sides all around. Um, the back of the device you see the camera layout is a little different from last year's. It, it really matches, you know, the individual little camera lenses popping out um, matches the look of uh, of the current uh, iteration of phones. So, the, you know, the design between the phones and the tablets really match. You can see this uh, little area on the back here. That is for your S Pen. I'm happy to say the S Pen actually ships in the box and you can snap that back there. Now it's not like embedded into the device. Um, if they did that, this device would be a lot thicker. Um, it just would be, but then the, but the magnet's pretty solid. And when it's attached there, it is charging. Um, you can, you can hardly see it uh, probably on the overhead, but here, let me get the, uh, do the fingerprint sensor, of which there is one, as you saw there. But up at the very top, you don't need to zoom in or anything, but I promise you one of those icons is a little pen. And essentially that is charging. That's what's happening there is it is sending charge from the tablet to the S Pen to keep it charged. And it does not take very long to do that. But the design itself, you know, it's it's pretty solid. You've got your uh, USB-C port down the bottom, uh, dual uh, speakers on both sides. And I actually have to say the speakers are very loud. Uh, they're actually 20% larger from last year's uh, speakers in, in the tablet then. So that's nice. You know, they're still, you know, they're still going to be kind of thin and a little empty. You're not getting any booming, you know, qualities out of it because they're tiny little speakers, but they do sound better. Um, this has for the first time IP68 water resistance. So you could soak this in water for up to 30 minutes, uh, according to the IP68 rating. Uh, I did not do that. I'm not going to do that for <laughs> to AT&T's review unit. I will take their word for it. Um, but nonetheless, um, you you know, if you if you find yourself in a wet environment, this tablet is going to be uh, protected a lot more just inherently because of the IP68 rating. Um, the buttons on the top, you know, they I they they feel solid. They pop out just enough for it to feel, you know. Um, kind of intact and not loosey and, and kind of squishy or anything like that. They're very solid feeling. This is where the, um, the SIM card uh, tray exists. So design-wise, I mean, it's it's pretty simple slate, you know, the, not even a rounded display. It's, it's very flat, and uh, that allows it to be very thin. Um, so it really does just fit into the bag really nicely. Um, has a little bit of kind of like a sharp edge edge to it. I mean, they've uh, what do they call that? The they've I guess they've rounded it a little bit. I don't know that it's necessarily chumford, which is a word I enjoy saying. Um, but <laughs> but it does, you know, if you're if you're kind of holding it into your wrists as you're watching something, the kind of edges of the tablet do have a tendency to kind of dig in a little bit. It wasn't horrible, but um 
it's just something to, to keep in mind. Some people really prefer kind of the more rounded edges of other devices. The display itself is a 12.4-inch dynamic AMOLED. It can ramp between 60 hertz to 120 hertz refresh, depending on uh, the content, depending on what you're looking at. Um, and so that's uh, that's very nice. Um, did you know that the piranha often feared as a bloodthirsty killer? Okay, so you can see, uh, you know, it things things uh, kind of scroll smoothly when you're on YouTube. Um, in other apps, as I've been scrolling through, I don't get that kind of like herky jerky knit quality uh, that I do see on some pieces of hardware. Um, so the, and the display, like the colors are nice. It's a narrow display, as you see here. It's 16 by 10. Um, so it's not book like like what you might get out of the iPad, right? It's it's definitely a little bit more geared for media consumption. So YouTube uh, works you know, really well uh, from that regard when I'm not watching an ad. <laughs> so let's see here. Let's go ahead and skip that. And we can go ahead and jump to the full screen. And I could probably even improve the, uh, the quality because I don't think that it's automatically doing that. But I'm not. Oh, there we go. Hold on. Let me see if I get that here. Quality. Yeah, it's auto to 360. Let's just go higher quality. And, and did it even snap over? I don't even know this. Oh, there we go. It snapped into place now. Okay. Anyways, um, sometimes display quality is hard to show on a live stream because we're already filtering through cameras and everything uh, to get to your display. But I can say like the brightness of this display when I'm outside was wonderful. I had this outside uh, playing fallout shelter quite a bit um and it was ample you know ample brightness for the outside light uh, the daylight light um performance wise you've got the snapdragon 8 gen 2 processor in here and uh fast enough for everything that i was throwing at it i i really could not be slowed down by this which is to be expected for samsung's premium hardware um it has a 10,090 milliamp hour battery with 45 watt wired charging i found this to have excellent battery life it actually survived uh pretty much all of my trip to boise um, and I was there almost a week ago or for, for almost for, for a week, a few weeks ago, but, uh, for a week. And I was using this thing like crazy. Um, I don't know why it's taken so long to load this particular level. Um, but I don't, I think that's probably more on fallout shelter than that is the tablet itself. Um, but I found the battery life to be wonderful, uh, through that use. It also charges really fast. This thing has a vapor chamber, uh, inside. So that's for uh, two way heat dissipation. So when you're, you know, playing an intensive game or doing a lot of multitasking and stuff, like I never felt the tablet actually heat up and, and get warm, which I, I do uh, detect with some tablets. Um, and then just so you know, like I said, this does have 5G connectivity, um, which came in really handy. This is the only version, the only variant to have that. So if you're getting the S9, the Tab S9 or the Tab S9 Ultra, you're not going to have the ability to do the 5G um, with the SIM card, but you can with the Plus. So that's definitely um, a, a bonus for this particular hardware. Samsung's One UI, it's One UI 5.1. It's kind of a known quantity at this point, at least if you've used Samsung in the last couple of years, you know that Samsung has, I feel like they have really kind of stepped up their game in Yes, still offering a lot of the kind of bonus features and stuff that um, that they're known for, but also just kind of, you know, after a short break, break um, kind of break in period, getting out of the way, like I haven't been nagged on this tablet nearly as much as I sometimes complain about when setting up new Samsung devices, a little bit here and there. Um, but for the most part, the UI um, offers more uh, while still kind of getting out of the way. Uh, when need be. And, you know, some of the like multitasking options. Let's see here. Let's go to YouTube. I can, you know, open that in split screen mode, have something else over here. Maybe it's a calculator. I don't know why I'd need to pull up a calculator, but you can do some of these kind of um, things that uh, from a multitasking perspective that I actually really enjoyed doing on the Z Fold uh, that I reviewed like a month ago. And, uh, you know, the tablet kind of layout allows you to 
to do that. And a big part of that is what Samsung has done with One UI to enable that. Um, as far as updates are concerned, you get four years of OS updates, five years of security. That was kind of uh, the top of the heap. Um and, and I guess officially still is, but the, the rumor is that next week with Google's Pixel uh, announcement that they are going to offer up to seven years of updates. So it'll be interesting to see if Samsung ups its game. I mean, I, I feel like the hardware and the software inside would be capable of uh, stepping up to that next level, but we'll leave that to uh to Samsung to uh, determine. Um, I was just showing the cameras and I kind of showed you a little bit of the camera roll. I'll be honest, when I use tablets, I rarely ever take pictures. So I didn't really put the cameras through its paces as much as someone who really uses the cameras on their tablet might. Um, I always, you know, and, and I think rightfully so when I really kind of blew up some of the pictures that I did take on this device, um, you know, they, they look fine, but they, there was nothing really to write home about some of, you know, it, you get a little bit of that kind of blown out uh, texture uh, when you are in ample light. I mean, it might look good when you're zoomed out, but then when you start zooming in, you start to see kind of the, the image break down and in ways that I'm not used to seeing when I look at my pixel images and really kind of scrutinize some of the detail um, that is found in there. This is more like the wide angle lens on the back and this is the standard, so you can see a little bit of the the depth dimension, the the difference between what they're able to capture. This is uh, m- me uh, surrounded by a tree giving a face, but this is the front-facing uh, camera to give you a sense of kind of what you're capable of, of getting out of the front-facing camera as well. And, uh, you know, it's fine. It has a camera. It's it's serviceable. It's it's fine. That the images definitely do not stand up to the quality that I'm used to seeing on their phones. A little bit of kind of like hazy quality at times. Um, but I've seen a heck of a lot worse when it comes to uh, cameras on tablets. And so I think you know for for a camera on a tablet, it's fine. It's just not amazing. I think overall uh, for Android, like I said, Samsung's premium tablets. Uh, in my opinion, are the ones to beat. I always really enjoy when I get my hands on Samsung's latest kind of premium tablet offering. This was no different. I really enjoyed using this tablet, and I'm sad that I had to uh, return it because I just really loved it. Um, it is pricey, though, and that is kind of the big thing about Samsung's you know top-of-the-line hardware, and especially with their tablets. Like This configuration is $1,149, so... You're paying a pretty penny to get this premium tablet experience on Android, and that's going to turn some people away. Like some people, you know, if whether it's fair or not, some people are going to go, well, why would I spend, you know, almost $1,200 on an Android tablet when I can get a, you know, a better tablet with uh, one of the, with like the iPad Pro or whatever, you know, perspective they're coming from, Um and I don't know, I think that's just a determination you have to make whether $1,200, almost $1,200 for a large format Android tablet uh, is worth it to you. Um, it's a fantastic piece of hardware. I actually really like it a lot. Uh, I don't know that I would spend $1,200 or 1150 um, out of pocket for this tablet. Like maybe if it was like right around 999 maybe I'd be more inclined with that. But man, passing, I don't know what it is, but passing that that thousand dollar mark and, and going into the the four digits makes it harder for me, but it's great hardware. You got that update promise. Hopefully that expands at some point and Samsung opens that up. But I mean, even if it's just five years, I think the hardware and the software um, capabilities inside this tablet give it um, give it a nice bit of life. If you're spending uh, eleven fifty you know, $1,150 for it. So that is the Samsung Galaxy Tab S9 Plus 5G. Thank you to AT&T for sending me this review unit. And, uh, you know, if you have the opportunity, check it out for yourself and see what you think about kind of premium Android tablet experience. That is it for this episode of Tech News Weekly. Love doing this show. I always learn so much getting the opportunity to talk with people uh, each and every week about the different topics that we bring on. And uh, it's just a heck of a lot of fun. A little bit more fun when Mike is here, but he'll be back next week. So I'll look forward to that. Uh, If you want to find this show 
and subscribe. If you haven't subscribed, please do that. Twit.tv slash TNW. That's the most important thing. Go there and subscribe. We appreciate when you do that. Um, if you want all of our shows without any ads, well, you can do that too. That's called Club Twit. Twit.tv slash Club Twit. You pay $7 per month. You can pay more than that if you like. Some people have told us they want to, so it's totally up to you. But the services, you know, the subscription tier is $7 per month. That gets you every show that we do with no ads. That gives you a ton of shows that we don't do outside of the club. They're exclusive to the club, like my other show, AI Inside. Also, uh, Hands on Windows, Hands on Mac, Home Theater Geeks. Um, we've just got so, so many other shows, as well as like AMAs. Um, just did an AMA and, uh, Pruitt just did an AMA and ask me anything with, uh, Lou Maresca. I believe that was this morning. So we've got all this, you know, this kind of value add content that we're creating just for the club. And then you get access to a members only discord, um, channel, which is a heck of a lot of fun as well. That's $7 per month, twit.tv slash club twit. And you're, you're helping us continue to do what we love to do here at twit directly when you do that. So I uh, can't thank you enough uh, for all the club members and hopefully you'll become one too. You can find me uh, on all the social media. Just do a search for Jason Howell. Hopefully you find my real one because I'm not always quick enough to the draw to, to reserve just Jason Howell on these networks as much as I wish I was. But uh, do a search. You'll probably be able to to see which ones are mine uh big thanks to john to john burke was testing uh folks out for today's interviews uh as well behind the scenes so thanks to burke and thanks to you for watching and listening each and every week and we'll see you next time on tech news weekly bye everybody come join us on this week in enterprise tech expert coast and i talk about the enterprise world and we're joined by industry professionals and trailblazers like ceos CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, every acronym role plus IT pros and marketeers. We talk about technology, software plus services, security, you name it, everything under the sun. You know what? I learn something each and every week and I bet you you will too. So definitely join us. And of course, check out the twit.tv website and click on This Week in Enterprise Tech. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.